Before we get into that, there was a, a word this morning, a, we'll call it a word of knowledge, I believe that's what it was, word of wisdom maybe, uh, uttered during worship, and there was a reference here, and it kind of ties into, it's kind of interesting how, it, how the Holy Spirit does this, ties into some things I'd like to say before we really get into our scripture this morning, and I just smudged my glasses, I didn't clean them like I thought I did, so we're done with that. Um, the reference was to Revelation chapter 5. There's an angel who holds a scroll, a strong angel, the, the text tells us. And there, he's asking, is there anyone who could open this book? Is there anyone who could open this scroll? And John begins to weep. He's upset because it seems as though there is no one strong enough to do this. And yet, there's Christ. And it says, as Christ come fo comes forward and takes the book or the scroll, the four living creatures begin to sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign forever. Oh, sorry, reign upon the earth. Wow, I just added text to the Bible. God forgive me. Um, we're in the Gospel of Mark, though. That's a, that's a thing in, in Revelation. But, but here's what we see happening there. The scope of who Jesus is. When we understand who he is, it impacts how we worship. Now, some of you have heard me say this numerous times. Ever since we began going through the Gospel of Mark about a year and a half ago, you've heard me say this multiple times. Your life reflects your theology. How many of you have heard me say that? Yeah? How many of you agree with it? Say amen. Okay, so everybody's awake. All right. Your life imitates your theology or it reflects your theology. What is theology? Now, many people will just say, well, that's just a study of God. And that's true because it's, it's got ology and theos, and, and we, we come to that conclusion. That's, that's accurate. Theo, theos, is the Greek for God, right? But ology, what we typically just add to a study of something, actually comes from a Greek word, logia. It's where we get the word logic. It's also where we see the Greek word logos, the words. And really, when we understand that, yes, it's study, but it's also the beliefs that surround and the things we say, the statements surrounding a certain topic. And in this case, it's theos, it's the divine, it's God. So when we have good theology, we have good statements, beliefs, understanding of theos, of God, that's going to impact the way we worship Many of you heard me a few weeks ago talk about the Greek word doxa, which is Greek for glory, uh, glorify. That's where we get the word doxology. How many of you have heard, ever heard of an old hymn called The Doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Pastor, please stop. My ears are bleeding already. Okay, but it's a classic. It's, a, it's, it's important. The doxology is one, one thing, one small footnote in all of worship, all of doxology. It is the, the way we worship has to be tied to our theology. We see this play out even in heaven itself. John is weeping because he doesn't understand there's someone who can open the scroll, who can open the book. His theology needed corrected. So an angel comes along and says, wait, wait for it, wait for it. 
Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is Christ who has the power to do this. The reason we're going verse by verse and slowly walking our way through the gospel of Mark. Mark is the most basic of gospels, by the way. It was possibly the first one written, probably the first one written. Most scholars seem to think either that one or Matthew. And many believe Mark wrote his gospel. Matthew and Luke read it and then wrote their own based on Mark's plus their own other investigations or memories based on the author. But it's the shortest gospel. It's the basic If we don't understand the Christ, the Jesus figure of the gospel of Mark, we have poor theology. We have bad theology. Amen? And that's going to influence our doxology. Now, if you have great theology, but you have no doxology, you have dead orthodoxy. We have what we, what we would call an egghead church. We all know about Christ. <laughs> Liberty is just competing with me today. She is going on. That's okay. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> got me. She got me. Uh, no, it's okay. Um, if we have dead orthodoxy, if all we have is theology, we don't have good doxology, we become an egghead church. We know about Christ, we know Christ, but we don't worship Christ and we don't share Christ because it's all up here. It's not here. If we only have good doxology without good theology, it quickly becomes idolatry. Because we'll just worship and sing about anything. And we see this happening in so many churches because the Bible's not explained. They don't go through and and talk about who the true Jesus is. The doxology quickly becomes meology. And many of the worship songs you hear on K-Love and the radio reflect this. How great I am would be their song if we really boiled it down. And so we're going through all of this so we understand the truth of the Christ that we worship, who Jesus truly is and and what he was about and why he came and what he did and all those things because it's reflected in our worship. Amen? All right. Now, if you will, go ahead and stand with me this morning. We're going to read from the Word of God. Beginning in verse 32 here in Mark chapter 10, only a few verses so you won't be standing long. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Maybe seated this morning. Father God, I just want to pray one more time. Thank you for your word. I pray it speaks to us today. I pray that it not be my words, but yours, Father. I pray you use my abilities to speak to our hearts, to change minds, change hearts, bring about repentance. Father, that we understand the truth of who your son is and worship him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one thing you have to understand is Jesus is leading this group to Jerusalem. 
And he tells them what's going to happen. This is the third of, in Mark's gospel anyway, this is what's called the third passion prediction. It's basically his way of telling the disciples what's coming once they get to the city. That's why I call this title, the title of the message today is The Last Goodbye. This is the last time Jesus is going to spell it out for his disciples what exactly will transpire when they hit the city. What's going to happen. And if you notice, the disciples don't seem too phased by this. They don't understand this. But what we really see playing out in the context here and what's taking place is simply Jesus leading the way towards suffering, towards hurt, towards trial, towards death even, and also ultimately towards resurrection. And so today, if you get nothing else from this message, the one point I hope you write down, the one thing that goes with you, I hope you understand that wherever you are headed, wherever you are, Christ has gone before you, and if you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, Christ is going with you. As I was preparing for this message, sometimes I like to listen to videos or podcasts, mostly just as background noise. You guys have seen my ADHD on display this morning, and sometimes that really creeps in on Mondays when I'm preparing my messages, and I was just having random stuff from YouTube play and there was a video on Christian movies that people should watch. So I haven't watched this movie in its entirety, but it looked pretty interesting. It's called The Taliabo Story and it's a documentary about two families who want to go to Indonesia and reach the unreached peoples there. And so they go and they sit down and they begin to walk through the Bible from Genesis forward as one should. And they, they make it very clear they are reading to get to this character called Jesus because Jesus is the hero of the entire story. Amen? And what they do is they get, they get to the point where he goes to the cross and he dies and the missionaries do something phenomenal. You know what they do? They stop teaching. They stop at the cross. And this has such an impact on the people. They begin to mourn. They begin to hurt. Some people refused to even speak to anyone. They couldn't fathom. This man was the hero. He was the savior of the world. And now he's dead. How could this be the end? In mourning, for three days, they didn't tell the people. And in mourning, the whole town gathers together the next day, and they erect a cross in the center of town, and they put a crown of thorns up on it, and they, they want to memorialize this hero who died for them. One young man said, I could think of nothing else. My hope was dead. All of my hope was gone. But three days later, the missionaries began to teach again. And he said, then I heard, death could not hold him. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive to rescue us. Thank you, God. Jesus paid for my sins. Church, that is someone who understands the scope and the, the power of the cross and who Jesus truly is. That's someone who has understood their theology. And it's brought him to worship. 
And so many times we hear the gospel because we live in the nation we live in. You understand, there are more English translations of the Bible than there have been translations of the Bible in any language, all languages combined for the past 500 years. I'm sorry, past 2,000 years. Since the last 500, it's been put in other languages. We are so spoiled, the gospel of Christ no longer affects us. It no longer stirs us. Many times, like the disciples in our text today, we take, for, we take for granted who Jesus is and what he did. We forget that Jesus is alive, that he alone paid the price for our sin to be washed away. And just like the disciples, we'll often hear and we'll nod and with hardened hearts, we'll live unmoved. Life goes on. But church, wherever you are, whatever you are going through, Christ is with you if you are in Christ, and he has gone before you. He has made a way for us to have true eternal hope, a sure hope. Now, those of you who come on Wednesday nights, you know, and you're going to hear it again this Wednesday night, hope is one of my favorite words in the Greek. It's the Greek word elpis. Because when we say in English, we hope, it's not founded on anything. I hope it doesn't snow again this year. Good luck. I hope that somebody might have got pizza or something for the potluck. Okay. Somebody might have brought fried chicken, some things I really enjoy, right? No, that's not the type of hope the scripture talks about. It is hope based on fact. We know Christ is going to return. We don't know when, and so we hope. And that's the kind of hope that we must have. And Jesus, and, and for those of you who like these things and messages, this week I, I brought them back to three points rather than just walking through the, the message. I, I brought back three points. And the three points today are simply this. Jesus points the way, he paves the way, and he provides the way. And so the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus points the way for us. We read back again in verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And we're just going to stop right there. They're on this road. They're on this path. If you remember from a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago when we looked at the rich young ruler, this path, this road, it's understood to be Jesus's path. It's Jesus's road. He knows where he's heading. He's going towards the cross and they just happen to be following along with him. And it says they're going up. I don't know about you, I'm from an area of Illinois, we are down south, and if we're going to go to Chicago, we go up north. Anybody use that expression, you guys use that expression in North Dakota? Right, we're going to go up to Grand Forks, down to Aberdeen, right? That is not what's happening in this scripture, okay? He's talking about going up, they are ascending, they are going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city that sits about 2,250 feet above sea level. It's a small mountain or a very, very large hill where Jerusalem sits. And Jerusalem, ironically, if you know the history of that great city, it's known as the city of what? Peace. Of all the cities on earth, that's the city of peace. Oh, Jerusalem, who slaughtered the prophets? That's the city of peace? Its actual literal name is the foundation of peace. And yet this is where Jesus must head. 
This is where he's leading the crowd, where he's taking the disciples. Jesus is walking ahead. We see that. We might say, well, yeah, he should. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. That's what one does. If, if we had a teacher who just walked uh, and told the kids go to the park and then trailed along behind them, we'd say, hey, that's negligent, right? Jesus is their rabbi. He's their teacher. So, of course, he's going to walk ahead of the crowd. That just seems at first glance that's, that's customary, but there's something bigger happening here. His walking on ahead, many scholars over the years have taken this to really mean he is resolutely marching. He's not walking slowly. Jesus is not shuffling his feet on the way to Jerusalem. My dad used to have this expression because I hated mowing the yard. And I would walk to the lawnmower like this. And he'd say, go, go to the lawnmower. He said, get, get to mowing. You're, you're walking like you have dead lice falling off of you. And I, to this day, I don't know what that means. I have never had dead lice just fall off of me. So I don't know what that, what that was intended. But you, Jesus is not walking that way. He is, he is not walking in fear. He's not approaching with caution. Jesus has the march of a conqueror, of a, of a uh, I lost my place in my notes there for a second, of a, of a determined king. He knows where he's headed, and he knows the purpose for which he's headed there. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 50, verse 7. It says, for the Lord helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus marches because he knows where he's headed and the importance of that destination. Now, one thing we have to understand, he's not being dragged. Nobody's pushing him. Nobody's prodding him. No crowd is carrying him. No influencer is in his ear saying, you know what, this would be the time to take over. This would be the way to become king of, of the people. He marches resolutely. He's not nudged. He's not prodded. Jesus knows where he's heading. He knows what he's heading towards. And church, make no mistake about it, he knows why he's going there. He himself is leading the way. And this causes the disciples to be amazed and the crowd to be fearful. The disciples are amazed because they know what's waiting on him in Jerusalem. They know how many people he's made angry. They know what they've done in the past. They've tried to kill him in the past. And keep in mind, Passover's coming. And so all the people in Capernaum, all the, all the synagogue rulers in, in Galilee, and all the surrounding areas of Perea where he's been just now upsetting people, where are they headed? Jerusalem. This is going to be Jesus walking into Jerusalem with every single person he's upset over the last three years waiting on him, conspiring against him, licking their chops, holding rocks ready to stone him. And the disciples know this. And so they're amazed that he is so ready to go. 
that he's marching there with such pomp and so, so ready to just head this way. It doesn't make sense. In fact, if we understand the chronology of Jesus' life, there was an event not long before this took place where he went to Bethany. He had to have gotten pretty close to Jerusalem to do this. But he dodged it. He went out of his way. He, he got down to Bethany to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And the disciples knew where he was heading and they knew the direction of how close he'd be getting to Jerusalem. And that's why Thomas, who's called Didymus, says, let's go, we'll die with him. Thomas isn't being pessimistic. He's not doubting here, by the way. Thomas is showing great faith. If Jesus is gonna die, let's go because we're gonna die with him. That was his attitude then. But things have changed, right? He walks and they're amazed. But the crowd is fearful. The crowd is worried. Something is up. They're probably anticipating a fight, a battle. Jewish tradition at that time states that prior to the Messiah's becoming established as the, the king of kings and, and the ruler of the world, there was going to be some kind of war in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders of that time, think about this in the context of what you know about Scripture, the religious leaders of that time would be exposed to be just as corrupt as the Roman authorities they claimed to work with. Hmm. On top of that, there's a Roman garrison waiting in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is marching with this crowd behind him, all of that waiting before him, and you've got to look at this and say, if he is a revolutionary, if he is going to make war, this is the most non-lethal revolution ever. He's taking pilgrims, not just 12 disciples. And yet Jesus marches without fear. And from the outside looking in, we have to ask the question, what is he doing? He would get wiped out fast. What good is a fishing pole against a Roman sword? Right? Who are his disciples? Maybe one guy who could fight. The rest, businessmen, fishermen, they have no chance. They're commoners. They're not soldiers. And the advance gets put on pause for just a moment as Jesus looks at his disciples and he takes them aside and he begins to tell them what's going to happen to him. You know, only Jesus can do this. Truthfully, only Jesus knows what tomorrow will bring. We look at the sidekicks and I remember the time where if you stayed up late at night, you could hear all about Miss Cleo. Remember that? And she supposedly could tell the future. I don't believe that for a second, by the way. In fact, I actually heard Miss Cleo got hit by a semi-truck. You'd think she would have saw that coming. That was a poor joke. She really didn't. I don't know if she got hit by a truck. She might have got diabetes, though. Um, anyway, <laughs> she, was, uh, she was a false teacher or a false predictor of the future. Jesus doesn't. You know, I can't tell you what tomorrow will bring. Those of you who know me, you know that I set my schedule very strict. It's a habit I learned a long time ago in another life, I guess, another job. I live and die by my calendar. 
What I have on there, I have to try and, and make sure that I get to it. And this past month, it's all just been a blank because things just keep coming up, like ceilings caving in in the nursery and, and things of that nature. And, you know, I know tomorrow is my sermon preparation day that I'm going to come in, I'm going to open my Bible, I'm going to read, I'm going to study, but I don't know what phone calls I'm going to get. I don't know what people might stop by, and that's fine. That's part of it. But I don't even know. Someone who sets their schedule so, so strict, I don't even know what tomorrow might bring. Yet Jesus does. Nobody knows what the future holds except him. And this is his divinity on display. God knows the future. And this is showing us that Jesus is God. All the things he's going to say happen to him. And the disciples at this point have been told twice that he would suffer and die. He has predicted this. Like I said, this is the, the, the last goodbye. But if you turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 8, verse 31, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He turned to chapter 9, verse 31. It says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of God is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he's been killed he'll rise three days later and the message is the same pretty consistent that Jesus right both times he says they're going to kill him he's going to rise again and this is the third time before they enter Jerusalem it's the last time the time is drawing near and so Luke's gospel Luke 18 34 tells us the disciples understood none of these things they didn't get it his statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. And so we might want to ask, well, then why does he bother with them? Why does he tell them this? Jesus doesn't seem to me as the type of guy who'd waste his breath. And yet he does. He stops and he tells them, when it is finished, they can look back and they can understand the direction they were headed all along. That's why he does it. He tells them so that when everything is said and done, they can look and say, that man was God incarnate. Because only God knows the future. There's only, that's the only possible way on three different occasions he could tell us exactly what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. This is Jesus pointing the way, the direction they're going. And the direction we're called to go if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we understand that he is going ahead of us. Now, secondly, Jesus paves the way. Verse 33, he's saying to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He's saying literally, I, I mentioned he said we're going up to Jerusalem, but he's literally saying to them, we are ascending the mountain. There are echoes of Genesis right here in this statement. And if the disciples are astute, they're going to pick up on this. They're going to understand this. Genesis is replaying before their very eyes. You see, Abraham was told to go up Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son, his only son. Now we know, we understand Isaac was not Abraham's only son, but he, Isaac was the son of the covenant. He was the son of the promise. 
He was the only son that God was going to bless. And he was told to take this sacrifice up Mount Moriah. Now sacrifice, that's also a big deal. And there's a precedent set by God himself in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they sin. And what do they do? They do the same thing we try to do. They try to cover it up themselves. They try to hide it. They take fig leaves and they sew them together. Anybody here ever take a leaf off a tree and count how long it lasts? Not real long. It gets brittle, falls apart. Imagine your clothes doing that, being that brittle, falling apart so quick. But yet that's the best they can do at covering their sin. So God comes along in the cool of the day and he asks them, what have you done? Not because he didn't know, but because he wanted to have them admit it. And he decrees in that moment that there's going to come a time where the serpent's head will be crushed and though the son of Eve, the seed of Eve, is going to have his foot struck. That's a promise of the crucifixion, by the way. Only type of way that I'm aware of, at least, and most scholars can seem to find where somebody's foot has anything to do with them dying. And so God takes them aside and clearly the loincloths of fig trees aren't going to be enough. And what he does is simply this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his, Adam and his wife and he clothed them. God sets a precedent in that moment. By the shedding of blood, their sins are covered. Their shame is put away. Only through the shedding of blood can sin be covered. A sacrifice needs to, needs to be made to atone for this sin. And so we fast forward about 20 chapters to Abraham and Isaac, his only son. Ishmael has been sent away. And they're going up Mount Moriah. Now if the disciples were as astute as Isaac, they would know that they're is a sacrifice missing. But like God did for Abraham and Isaac, Abraham sa said God will provide for himself the lamb. And so they walk on. Jesus said we're going up this mountain and God has provided for himself the lamb. And he is staring them in the face. He refers to himself as the son of man and we may look at that and we might understand that to mean that Jesus is saying that he is the exclusive prophet of Israel because that's what they would call the prophet of Israel. We see this exclusively in Ezekiel 37 when God tells him, tells Ezekiel, son of man, speak to the wind, speak to the bones and all of that. Prophets were called that often but Jesus goes a little deeper and we understand in the context of who he is that Jesus is referring to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 says in verses 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And if you understand that, 
If you begin to grasp that, who and what that makes this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, and you believe in him, and you trust in him, and his redemptive work on the cross that he's describing in this very text, then within your life, a cold, dead heart begins to beat with new life as it thumps inside your chest. The Holy Spirit, when we hear that truth, who he is, what he's done, why he did it, he touches our heart, the very core of who we are, as we understand this Son of Man is truly the Son of God, and he has given dominion and glory, and his kingdom shall never pass away. That is who we serve. That is who we worship. That is why we come together every Sunday and we sing songs of praise. It's because of him. And yet knowing this, knowing what is what his role is. Jesus says he's going to be handed over. Now in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see this play out much later in chapter 14. Judas is going to come up and he's going to kiss him and betray him with that friend, uh, kiss of a friend. And they're going to take him and they're going to arrest him. The chief priests and the scribes, these are the leading members of a religious society. These are the worship leaders of their society. These are the ones who led in the doxology of the Jewish people. They were also mediators between the Jewish people and the Romans. And it seemed to be they liked their earthly power a little too much. They're going to refuse to see him as a deliverer. And instead they're going to see Jesus as competition. They're going to hand him over to the Romans. And the Romans will do, we'll get to that. During the Maccabean revolt, the high priest was given robes of purple and gold. The high priest who should be, and his whole purpose was to keep the Messiah's seat warm. He was a steward of the king. He was not the king himself. And yet, when Jesus comes along, well, few can really relinquish power once it's been given to them. And church, the more I study scripture, the more I understand these people who are going to accuse my God and your God and, and my Savior and your Savior, and the more I understand where they're coming from and what they're actually doing, and we read the context of their words and the content of what their words were meant, were meaning, what the most disgusting, disturbing thing is that they knew who he was. They knew he was the son of God. They knew he was the Messiah and they passionately fought against him because they liked their stuff, their role, their little kingdom that for themselves they've set up. They knew who he was and in one place they don't even deny it. In another, they admit it. In John 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader in this group of people, he comes to Jesus and what's he say? He says, Rabbi, we know you have come from God. We know it. No one can do what you do if God's not with him. Do you understand 
what, how evil these men were to know that and still accuse him of what they accuse him of and, and fight against him and try to have him killed? And another point, Luke twenty two seventy. they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And they don't try to debate him. They get angry that he says it. If he was a liar, a lunatic, they could refute that. They could catch him in a lie and they've, they've tried. So many times they've tried. If he was crazy, this whole thing would fall apart. But if he's Lord, no, I'm going to lose my spot of power in the kingdom. That's what they're doing. That's who these men truly are. The truth is staring them in the face. And they would spit on him. And they would turn him over to the Romans to die. And David predicts this in Psalm 22. He says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. And he says the people, he's referring to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he goes on, he says, be not far from me for distress is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths at me as a lion that tears and roars. And when he's talking about the bulls, he's referring to Gentile people there who we know to be the Romans. He mentions the lion that tears and roars. That's very similar language to how Peter describes the enemy, the devil himself. These are those who are assaulting Christ and he's surrounded by them. And Jesus had never told his disciples this part. This part about the Gentiles. That's exclusive to this third and last goodbye. And yet as he points this to, out to them, it should surprise them, it should, shock, it should shock them, and the disciples don't understand it. They don't get it. Us, knowing what we know, being able to read the gospel accounts and study who he is and what he's done, we should be able to understand that. The Holy Spirit should speak to our hearts. And as we know, Jesus pointed the way for them, and he's paving the way for us. Through all the accusations, through all the betrayal, the mockery, he still paves the way for us. John's gospel clarifies this in John 15, 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He goes on, he says, a a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They hate me without cause, Jesus said. That is his way of paving the way. Wherever we're headed, wherever, whatever we're going through, whatever suffering we have, we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has suffered before us. It's not without cause or purpose that you might struggle or you might hurt or you might feel pain. Like I said, Christ has gone before you. Christ is with you now if you're in Christ. And Romans 8.28 tells us, it reminds us, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know his purposes are good. So Christ is going to go and suffer and go through these things. Why? For our good. Jesus paves the way as he goes ahead. And it will come about for his glory and for his purpose in our lives. 
And finally, we see Jesus provides the way. Verse 34, it says, They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Keep in mind, once again, Jesus knows this will happen to him. He's not caught off guard by anything that's going to transpire. It had been prophesied, it was as good as set in stone, and yet somehow, for some reason, we read in Matthew 26, Jesus prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, in that moment, is modeling for us what prayer is to look like. God, I would really like you to pay my bills. God, I would really like you to, to relieve me of this cancer. God, I would really like you to heal my, my relative, my friend. But not as I will, as you will. God knows, Jesus knows, as he treks towards, as he gets closer to this city. He knows they're going to mock him. He knows they're going to spit on him and flog him and ultimately kill him. We see it all play out as it does in the Gospels. Jesus gets mocked by Herod and his soldiers in Luke 23, 11. John says the soldiers twisted the crown of thorns and put, put that on his head and they placed a purple robe on him, mocking him as they slap him. When they would slap him, it's not meant by the way to physically wound or hurt or knock him down. It was a way of shaming somebody. They're shaming him. They're trying to knock this guy down a peg. And they spit on him. Matthew 26, 67, they spit in his face. They beat him with their fists. Pilate will have him flogged and ultimately crucified. And we have to ask all of this, why? What really, what per, why are they so mad at him? Again, if he was no threat, if he was just a, a guy saying things they could refute, they should refute it and be done. If he was crazy, and he, was just, he wasn't healing people, and this was all propaganda, they should be able to expose that. But if he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, they've got to stop him. And why would he subject himself to that? Why would he allow that to happen? Well, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Make no mistake why Jesus suffered or why he died it was in order for us to be made righteous before a holy God. And our sins are covered by his blood. Amen? Church, if that doesn't shock you, if that doesn't stir something within you, every time you hear it, you need to go back on our YouTube channel and listen to it again on repeat until it does. The gospel should hit our hearts afresh every time. But we have to remember for all that purpose, for the reason why he did it, we also have to remember that the writer of Hebrews says this, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. While Jesus does this as an atonement for us, he also in his suffering is an example to us 
The last few weeks, we've seen the cost of following Jesus. We've seen the rich young ruler. We've seen him telling the disciples what they would have to give up and the reward that's waiting on them. You understand, Jesus knows what he asks of us. He knows what he calls us to and what he calls us to do. And he knows where he's sending us and what he's sending us to do. But he does not send you where he himself is unwilling to go. He was ridiculed. He was condemned. He was handed over. He was mocked. He was treated as though he was worthless, almost beaten to death, and nailed to two planks of wood so that we may have a faithful witness who stands before the Father interceding on our behalf and who is an example to us. We have to remember, too, all suffering, in one way or another, it ends. I was talking with someone this week who's experienced a lot of suffering in their life, completely unwelcomed, they believe unwarranted. And I said this to them, I said, sooner or later the suffering will end, but that does not mean your story has to. So the story of Christ does not end with the crucifixion. Three days later, he will rise again. That's what he tells the disciples. Church, there are very few phrases in the English language more beautiful than that. In fact, I can only think of one off the top of my head, and that is simply, he is risen. And that's a beautiful theology of Christ, of who he is. We don't worship a dead prophet. We don't worship the corpse of a teacher or the memory of a man. But we worship a king who rose from the grave, who defeated death, who conquered the grave, and who will one day return for his church. Because he rose, one day we will rise. And if you have your Bible still open, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 briefly. Beginning in verse 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And we're going to skip down very quickly to verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Jesus Christ points the way, paves the way, and provides the way because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one, there's no other name on earth on which people may be saved. It is only through Christ. And no matter where we're headed, Christ has gone before us. Christ is an example for us. He paves the way even through the resurrection to eternal life. I'm going to move to close in just a minute. I keep thinking about that movie, though. If anybody knows where I can buy it, I'd love to. This idea of just what if the story stopped at the crucifixion? What if he said it is finished and then the credits roll? Where would we be? 
But praise God, we don't have to think about that. The tomb is empty. The resurrection. What joy is there in the resurrection? The death is nothing but sleep for the believer. The hero of the story lives. He could not be defeated. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, he goes ahead. He leads the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. The sad truth is not everyone will be saved. But today could very well be your chance, your opportunity, your time. If you're here, you're watching online, and you're saying, I have never submitted my life to Christ. I didn't know that about Jesus. I didn't trust Jesus like I should. Then today I would ask you, find a place of prayer. We're going to sing in just a moment. We're going to close, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. But I would ask you, have you surrendered to Christ if you're here, maybe, you're, maybe your struggle isn't that. Maybe you're just going through something else. You know what? Christ gave you a church to pray with you and pray for you. And if you're here and you, you've never given your life to him, you've never made that commitment, I would ask you in humility to surrender to Christ and ask him to be your king. But you do not suffer alone. You do not journey alone. You have Christ and the Holy Spirit, and you have a church that loves you and wants to pray with you, pray for you. I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. If you will, go ahead and stand. We're going to close in, in song, and I'll, I'll dismiss this in prayer. But if you would like to find a place to pray, please feel free to do so this morning.